welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm Maz, and I speak to soldiers, academics, refugees, peacemakers, and anyone else who's been touched by war, in the hope of demystifying, and most importantly, de-glorifying it. If you like what you hear, please consider showing your support by reviewing the show wherever you get your pods. You can also support us on our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this episode. My guest today is Dr. Dean Peter Baker, who is an Associate Professor of International and Political Studies in the School of Humanities and Social Science at UNSW Canberra, where he's also co-convener, together with Professor David Kilcullen, of the UNSW Canberra Future Operations Research Group. He's also a Senior Visiting Research Fellow in the King's College London Centre for Military Ethics and a Research Associate in the Centre for Applied Ethics at Stellenbosch University. Dean's work focuses mainly on the ethics of armed conflict. His current area of focus is on ethics and special operations, and he's a regular consultant to Australia's Special Operations Command, as well as the Australian Defence Force more broadly. He joins me today to discuss one of his recently published books, Morality and Ethics at War, Bridging the Gaps Between the Soldier and the State. I recently read this excellent book, and due to the ever-increasing complexity of modern battlefields, find it not only relevant but also very timely for just about every military in the world. Dean, thank you very much for joining me on the Voices of War. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So you've been a military ethicist for many years now. Maybe we can start uh, by finding out how this journey began uh, and what motivated you to uh, pursue this particular career path. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I don't know that many people start out wanting to be a military ethicist. It's not certainly not on the usual kind of list of career paths. <laughs> In my case, I kind of wandered into it. I um, had always had an interest in the military. Um, I had a brief period of service in the British Army uh, and uh, as a reservist in in the uh, um, South African <coughs> Army, excuse me. But my my academic career took me down the path of philosophy, and I didn't really think of any great way those two things would meet, and I didn't intend to, I didn't have in mind to, to join them up. But um, as an undergraduate, I dated a girl who was a, or a young woman, I should say, we were young men and women back then, mm. um, who was a nurse. And um, I didn't uh, think to check on her family before I started dating her and discovered <laughs> that she had three older brothers, um, <laughs> one of whom was a semi-professional rugby player and a bit scary, one of whom I'm not sure, but may have been a gun runner. Uh, and the, the eldest brother was um, a, a special forces soldier uh, who had, left the military and was working for a company I'd never heard of at the time called Executive Outcomes. Right. Um, and you may have heard of Executive Outcomes, yes, um, probably have. the prototype private military company. So I, I you know, I met them, um, ended up breaking up with this girl and went on, my, on with my life and studying uh, philosophy. And then some years later, I turned on the TV and there was uh, this older brother um, on TV being arrested for his role in an attempted coup in Equatorial Guinea. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So I did what academics do and um, decided to run a conference. So I ran a conference <laughs> on private military contractors, and that's kind of how I stumbled into military ethics. Wow. that's a And, and that's a very insightful journey, I guess, uh, and also shows a little bit of wisdom uh, on your part. Uh, to <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> to Opportunism, perhaps, but, yeah. but it, it's been really interesting ever since. The, the, another funny part of that story is I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the movie Blood Diamond. Yes, um, of course. But but the uh, the gentleman in question was actually the advisor to Leonardo DiCaprio on that movie, and his his character is modelled on him. So it's a it's a strange strange world. Oh wow. Okay. Well, what, what I meant by wisdom is that you got out of that relationship and uh, and, uh, and and ran quick <laughs> yes. smart, uh, absolutely. <laughs> given given, exactly. given the older brother's profiles. But uh, yes. yeah, uh, uh, it certainly also uh, I guess landed you in a in a pretty unique career. And then, and how did you find your way to then Australia and particularly UNSW, where you? I mean, I've, I've like I said to you before we started, I feel like I've known you for for years uh, and that's because I've seen your name so much uh, uh, around you know the traps of the Australian army and I've done a couple of your courses uh, uh, online Maku courses um, so yeah how, how did you how did you end up here 
Um, so yeah, as I said, I was I was in a, a normal university, I suppose, a, a civilian university teaching philosophy. I kept um, teaching these because I got interested in it. These uh, military ethics courses, and of course, my students were like, "Why are we doing this?" But um, so I, I got interested enough in it, and, and we decided we wanted to move on uh, from South Africa, where we were living at the time, and where I was working. Uh, so I applied for many jobs and managed to, to land one of them, which was at the U.S. Naval Academy in the Department of Leadership, Ethics and Law. So I taught there for um, almost three years and then got offered this job at UNSW Canberra um, and very similar roles. So uh, UNSW Canberra, for, the, for listeners who are not aware, is the academic uh, partner to the Australian Defence Force Academy. So our undergraduate students are trainee officers of uh, Army, Navy, and, and Air Force um, of the ADF. So it was a very similar role, and um, Australia is great, so it was, a, it was a no-brainer, really, to come over. Yeah, and I've gone through uh, UNSW ADFA uh, myself, so I've, uh, I certainly understand uh, how that process uh, works well. Uh, and this book in particular, I mean, I... To say it's timely, and I think you actually write in the opening, and of course, uh, Major General uh, Susan Coyle also in the uh, in the forward of the of the book addresses the timeliness of it. Why why did it come out now, and why is it important now? This particular book. So I'll, I'll just I'll just read the title again. Uh, it's the morality and ethics at war, bridging the gaps between the soldier and the state. So um, yeah, a great question. Why now? In in one sense, it's uh, just a, a case of. The, this is the moment in my career when, this, when I was ready to write this book. Um, but in another sense, it's, it's a, a response to a growing recognition, I think, that we're seeing of the, the challenge of um, particularly of moral injury. Uh, I didn't set out to write a book about moral injury, but that is a big part of what it became. Mm. Um, and, I, and I suppose in a way it's, a, it's me stepping back from my career of training or, or and educating um, future and current military personnel in the area of military ethics and, and stepping back and trying to put this all into a kind of broader context and trying to see where I guess the cracks are in the system. So um, the it, it all kind of came together around a, a project that that I uh, um, ran to, to create a course for uh, 6th Brigade. Mm. Uh, Susan Coyle was, was commanding officer of the brigade at the time and, and mm. that gave me this wonderful opportunity to, to write this up. Yeah, and for, for me personally, it really did speak to this need to address what the, the relationship between the state and the soldier. And of course, it's very contemporary right now because of the uh, alleged war crimes uh, conducted by uh, some members of the Australian Special uh, SAS. Uh, but of course, it's relevant to the UK, US, uh, just about uh, uh, any military in the world right now. But of course, it's very relevant right now in Ukraine as well, where we're seeing a real we're seeing this role between the state and the soldier really play out on the Russian side. Um, in fact, we're seeing it on both sides, but I think we can unpack it and, and draw the distinction uh, a lot uh, clearer on the Russian side. Uh, before we delve into that, what is the main thesis of the book? Um, or, or maybe what is, the, what is this ethical gap between a state and a soldier that needs to be bridged uh, that you're trying to address? Um, yeah, so I, I try to draw a distinction between um, morality and ethics um, in the book. So when I say uh, morality, that, that there's a difference, mm. um, ethicists will give you different answers to that question. But I tend to follow a, uh, a Canadian philosopher, uh, Charles Taylor, not mm. to be confused with the Liberian war criminal of the same mm. name. Um, and Taylor um, has a really neat way of drawing the distinction. He says that ethics is what is about what it's good to do and morality is about what it's good to be. And I think that for me, has been a useful framework in thinking about um, the the individual soldier, and I and I say soldier, um, I'm obviously referring to anyone in, in military service, but the individual who is a moral being in in mm. a rich and deep and mm -hmm. and um, all all encompassing sense, um, and trying to to draw a link and and quite unique sense as well, and trying to think about how that connects up with the the ethics of war, which are very um, Thin and narrow, and 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 tied to the nature of the state. So, so that's really the, the the underlying idea is to try to think about that the gap between that individual uh, and the the state that they serve, and how we um, can bridge that. Because I think that there are risks if we don't. That where where there's a gap that's not bridged, uh, that's where that's at least one potential cause of 
um, ethical failure on the battlefield, war crimes, and so on, uh, which has strategic impact, but it's also, I think, a, a potential cause for moral mm. injury for the individual. And so that's what the, the book is trying to address. And I definitely want to uh, get to moral injury, but what did you mean by that the ethics of the state is slim and narrow? What, what does that mean? That's, yeah, um, and I, maybe I struggled a little bit in trying to express that in the book and, and st- still struggling. But what I'm trying to say is in a, in a liberal democracy, um, at, at the core of the, of the idea of, of liberalism is the, the idea of freedom, that um, individuals who live in a state should be free to develop their lives as they see fit, um, to have their sense of what's valuable, what's good, what's right, what's wrong, as far as possible, but obviously within some bounds. So those bounds are defined by uh, our effect on others. Mm. We don't harm one another and so on. So that, that fundamental idea of freedom, I think, limits the, the kind of um, ethical framework that a state can have, that, it, this, that a liberal state is appropriate, that it's appropriate mm. for them to have. Mm. Mm. So we, we, we don't live in a world where we have a... Um, we don't live in a country anyway, mm. where we have a, a very deep and thick and rich sense of what the state wants the individual to be as a person. And that wouldn't be appropriate for that. So I think the, the ethics of war for the state have to be this very kind of thin and minimal thing that's just enough to, to hold it all together, but that doesn't try to turn uh, the combatant into something he or she is not necessarily. Okay, and, and just to push on that a little bit more, because I'm, I'm just trying to visualize the difference, for example, between Russia right now, uh, mm. because it could very easily, and, and, and I'm sure Putin and his henchmen are arguing that point, that this is all about Russian freedom uh, and freedom from oppression. Uh, and, you know, one could almost argue that, you know, what he's doing right now, the ethics of the ethics of the Russian state right now is to pursue the freedom of the Russian individual. So I'm just trying, I'm, I'm just trying to see where the distinction or the, the point of difference is between, you know, the narrative we're selling versus the narrative that someone like Putin is selling? Uh, well, I, I don't want to claim to be any kind of Russia expert. No, of course. Um, <laughs> so, so, but my, my impression, let's put it this way, is that while, while Russia is, um, describes itself as a liberal democracy or as a democracy anyway, um, it isn't really, it's an autocracy. And what that means is that, that while there is potentially talk about freedom as being central, that's not really what's driving things here. Hmm. Um, so so I, I think we've got to be careful not to get caught up by, by the, the propaganda, by, by the words that are said. And, and I think, again, is this really about um, freedoms? Well, I don't think it is. Um, so, But I, I guess I'm trying to get at this from a, a kind of broader position, hmm. again, hmm. trying to think about that individual and their relationship to the state, um, and that's where that tension lies, I think. Yeah, and, and, and the, the only reason I'm asking that point is because I think it's, it, it really is relevant to, to us in the West because I think we often uh, can fall for our own traps of our own narratives. And the reason I say this, for example, war in Iraq, uh, it could very easily be argued that the war in Iraq had nothing to do with freedom. And, and then that goes down to the relationship to, you know, how, how does that shape and influence the soldier who's on the ground? Uh, and I think this is what your book does exceptionally well, is really draw this tension out between the, you know, the causes for the USAD bellum or the justification of a war versus the USIN bellum or the conduct of war for soldier. And that those two somehow need to be, there need to be threads between those two that are robust and dense enough so that the soldier um, maybe believes that what the soldier is doing is just and ethical, unless that hap- and, and, and unless that happens, we can then start sliding into this uh, 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 kind of murky waters of, of loss of purpose, loss of sense of self. Uh, and I think this is where uh, you talk about uh, moral identity uh, and, and, and having an individual moral identity. Can you describe what you mean by moral identity and how does the moral identity actually link to this overarching ethic of the state. Um, so, and here I go. I go uh, lean back on my uh, my early philosophical career again and, and refer to the work of Charles Taylor. Mm. And, and Taylor, I think, is very insightful in trying to uh, understand what we are as human beings. Mm. And for him, and I think this is 
essentially right. Um, we are inescapably moral beings, not in the sense that we're always good, um, we certainly are not, but rather in the sense that we evaluate the world inescapably in broadly moral terms. We, we, we all, we, as we go through life, we're always making judgments that some things are better or worse, higher or lower, right and wrong. Um, that's an inescapable feature of what it is to be a human being. Mm. And people who didn't have that would be completely beyond our ability to, to actually engage and, and, and understand. Um, and so he drills deeper into that with that initial um, recognition that we, we, are, we have this inescapable um, way of viewing the world. What, what does that mean about us? And he thinks if we dig down, we identify that um, we, we align ourselves with a, a range of what he calls goods. So values that we, we hold as very important to us that define who we are and where we think we stand in moral space. How are we doing? Am I, am I good or bad? Well, I'm, I'm judging that by some sense of what I think good and bad is, good or bad is. Am I closer to it, further away, um, to these goods? And these goods define a kind of framework. Um, mm. And that framework is in, in many sense like um, the analogy is, is like your, your, spatial, your spatial environment mm -hmm. that it, you define yourself in terms of those things that are around you. I'm closer to this landmark and, and further away from that one, um, and I'm moving towards that other one. And the, the idea of a moral framework is that that defines us in some deep and inis, uh, an inescapable kind of way. Can I just jump in there with a question as well? Because I think yeah. that the, the, that's a really important piece of the puzzle, in my mind at least, is this the moral framework, which to me is, the, is almost a software that's you know running my mind uh, uh, or the algorithms inside my mind um, that dictate ultimately my behavior as I inter as as I interact with my environment. So so where do moral frameworks come from, and how how do how do we I guess install the software into our mind or even upgrade it? Uh, you know as, as we as we progress in life. Yeah. Um, so I, I, look, I think we we um, our framework develops throughout our lives. It starts with our parents. Mm. Um, or, uh, or whoever raises us, we, we get um, some of it from our peers. We, we get it from our culture. Um, it's what Taylor refers to as our webs of interlocution. Mm. Interlocution is those that, that others that we are in um, engagement with, mm -hmm. and this builds a very unique um, framework for each person. Nobody has exactly the same framework as, as somebody mm. else, um, and this is really what makes our identity so special okay. and so valuable. Uh, and this is, and one way of um, linking that to our, to the previous discussion was this is exactly the sort of freedom to be that person uh, that the liberal de democratic state exists to protect. Mm -hmm. That the things that you value that define you, you should be free to be able to do that. Mm. Okay, so so again, in my head, and I'm I'm a visual kind of learner, so I'm seeing kind of multitude of Venn diagrams, and you know, on the middle, uh, there's an overlapping one, which is our collective values, whatever that you say in. in in Australia or liberal democracies, there's a certain set of values and freedom would be at the core of that. Uh, and of course, there's a whole range of other values, you know, uh, that we at least, some of them might be pipe dreams, but at least we aspire to uphold, whether it be equality, whether it be uh, freedom of speech, uh, you know, pursuit of excellence and all of these kinds of things. And then, of course, from that centre, there's all the other individual Venn diagrams where we might have other identities. I mean, I might be uh, in the army, uh, you're a professor, that in itself is a different uh, social identity governed by its own uh, uh, own values, I suppose. Right. So, or, or they'll be the same values, but we weigh them differently. They, they take a different place in our framework. At, 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 at an individual level, you mean, is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and of course, by that, we're saying also that soldiers, uh, we have certain value system inculcated in our soldiers, uh, which is driven, I guess, top down from these values, and we aspire our soldiers to uphold. And, right. and I guess the, the, the core essence of your book is that it is these values that then need to dictate uh, how we conduct ourselves on the battlefield. Uh, and this is what we would refer to as the use in bellow, the conduct of war, uh, yeah. uh, or the rules of war, um, uh, which, which is a bit effectively what we've inculcated in our soldiers. Absolutely so, right. Yep. So, then, so, so the yep. question for me is how do we do that without changing or if you're almost violating uh, that individual framework. Mm. Uh, again, if that's a, an overarching principle of, of our society, that, that you should be free to develop that on your own, yeah. how do we get all of these people who have different frameworks to connect 
to to abide by the same ethical principles when it comes to to war fighting. Yeah, um, I think that's a that's a that's the real challenge. Yeah, and, and this then leads me to my next question, and 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 this is the the way I see it is the ethic is the Usad Bellum the state's decision to go to war that is governed by uh, certain principles, and then of course below that is the Usim Bello or the conduct of war which applies to the soldier, uh, and it strikes me as though we don't as a society hold those two um, to the same level of scrutiny. Uh, in a sense, our leaders, and this is something I've discussed elsewhere and previously, our leaders who send us to war can fundamentally do so with relative impunity. Uh, you know, no one's going to drag our political leaders over uh, sending our soldiers to war. In fact, uh, if anything, their popularity will go up, at least at that point in time. Uh, but then as we cascade down, it is the soldiers that we then ultimately hold to account. Uh, and, and this is, a, and I said in, in some of the questions I sent to uh, uh, before this, you know, there's there's one part in the closing remarks of chapter one, which are, which are, you highlight some really credible criticism of the just war tradition, and and I'm I'm forcing my own programming to change the just war tradition uh, after reading your book because I, I I fell to the for the trap of calling it just war theory, and uh, your book explained why it's not. So uh, I'm changing now to just war tradition. Now, but the only side issues uh, taken. Uh, with Yusin Bello. Uh, so, so the conduct, uh, transgressions only by combatants in war, uh, and you leave out any transgressions of Yusad Bello or those sending us to war. Why is that? Because I think, it, particularly when we're talking about the title of the book, you know, it's the bridge between the state and the soldier. So, so, so why are we not focusing on the Yusad Bello? So I think um, for the book, the focus is on how do we help uh, soldiers not make bad decisions on the battlefield um, and, and not um, fall into ethical failure? And also, how do we prevent them from um, suffering from moral injury? Mm. And, and I guess that's given the book more of a, an in bello focus than an ad bellum focus. But having said that, you know, I read that section again, and I think you're right. I think that's a bit of an oversight um, on my part because I do agree that the, the ad bellum um, is really important in both those respects. And having that right is, is really very key. I mean, traditionally, the just war tradition, and I've also used to call it the, the <laughs> just war theory, so I'm also guilty, but I think it's better to think of it as a tradition. Yeah. But but historically, that there's been a very clear distinction uh, between ad bellum and in bello. And there's good reason for that. Um, the... The, the point of that distinction is, is to protect the combatant, is so mm. that the combatant is not held responsible for the decision of the, uh, um, you know, the government to go to war, which may be a decision to go to an unjust war. The idea is to protect the combatant from that so that they don't end up having to be held uh, as war criminals because they fought in an, an unjust war that they, their job is to make sure that they carry out that war in a, in a just way. So that's mm. the reason we've had that sharp distinction. But yeah. in, in reality, um, it doesn't go all the way, does it? That, that it does matter um, where we are in terms of um, is this overall thing a just war? Uh, yeah. that, is, that is important. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that that was just a bit of an oversight on my part. Uh, and certainly, I certainly didn't mean to to come across as I'm picking holes. It's more, it's mainly because I think this is a really relevant point that uh, I just feel like we're not, and I'm not sure if that's an institutional uh, failure that we as a or, or as an organisation, uh, whatever it is, that we're just not addressing. Uh, uh, we're dealing with issues inside the bubble, but we're not looking above the bubble. What's actually creating the bubble, and 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 that that to me feels like there's a disconnect because that, of course, then ultimately contributes greatly to uh, uh, moral injury, as we'll discuss shortly. But there's one question that just popped up into my mind. Then, as you were talking, so can we can we fight an unjust war justly as soldiers? And this is obviously a big question that's been asked previously. It's certainly nothing new, but it's an important one, given you know the context of the uh, of, of the book. Yeah, look, I think that comes back to that, that issue of why we draw that distinction between ad bellum and, and in bello. Um, I don't think as, as soldiers we can fight in an unjust war and, and come away from it um, completely untainted. Mm. Um, but the, if, if we have conducted ourselves, and I say we have I've never done it, but we probably never will, um, 
but if soldiers have conducted themselves, yeah, yeah. (laughs) soldiers have conducted themselves Mm. appropriately, um, they can at least walk away going that with the sense that what was in their control they did right, Mm. Um, and I think that's that's really important. It's not going to be a hundred percent of a protection against moral injury and potential feelings of shame of contributing to something that was was inappropriate um but i think it's it is very important mm. yeah and that's the and i guess that's the challenge and 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 i asked this as a, as a as an officer in the army uh as one who served overseas i certainly haven't been on the front lines in any in any way uh never fired a shot in anger uh, but i certainly can empathize with the the blurry line of you know a war that in itself can be is 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 a shade of gray uh, as to you know its uh, justifications um but then how does that influence me conduct, you know doing my duty uh, because ultimately everything i'm doing is as as part of soldiering uh, is to fight an enemy uh, or to defeat an enemy and to pursue operational success uh, for you know my force uh, but if that force is there for all the wrong reasons uh, then you know uh, uh, see i there was a real, and, and I can really relate this now to, to, I guess, the Russian soldiers, what they're experiencing right now, right? So they are in a, and, and I think we can comfortably say that this is an unjust war. Um, invasion of uh, of Ukraine is an unjust war. Uh, uh, I think many, one would find it very difficult to argue uh, otherwise, uh, unless one was sitting in the Kremlin, uh, which, of course, is <laughs> a very different uh, view. And those soldiers are now being told to fire at civilians, it's a very blatant breach of Geneva Convention uh, of, of of what the moral instinct of a soldier is, you know, to protect as opposed to uh, harm civilians. But they're carrying out those soldiers because for them, the you know, the narratives that they have to embrace in order to even be there, lest they commit suicide by not being there, uh, i.e., turning back and, and deserting. Um, it's a, that's the slippery slope. Now, this is a rather extreme case, and we can quite clearly draw the lines, but for us Western nations where we certainly wouldn't target civilians intentionally, uh, it's a little bit more of a grey area. Is there a point that you see, or at least that you've that you've, that you've wrestled with yourself, uh, where soldiers, or our leaders at least, need to question the state's ethic, uh, you know, need to question whether a war meets uh, Usad Bellum? And, and, and if, if there is a clash, what does the military do, given its contract to the government of the day? <laughs> so yep. it's it's a really challenging one. I think it's a, it's a, one of the key questions, and it's a vital one. Um, I I like the, the term um, General Milley, who's uh, you know chairman of the Joint Joint Chiefs of Staff in the US. Um, he had this term, disciplined disobedience. Um, mm. I like that in in the sense that, um, and he you know he's talking really across all levels, but I think that the military in general. Um, should have the capacity for a kind of disciplined disobedience. Um, and what do I mean by that? Well, um, Peter Fever, uh, who's um, at Duke University uh, and, and is an outstanding um, scholar on civil military relations, he's got this catchphrase, which is very memorable. I think he's, you know, it's, it's right. Um, he says that in a democracy, elected civilians have the right to be wrong. Um, mm. And and that's a fundamental um, purpose, you know, notion of a democracy. That it's not for the military to make decisions about policy; um, they're not elected to do that. Um, having said that, if some, you know, if we're in a situation where a, a an elected official is um, suggesting or proposing or, or driving a course of action that is clearly unethical. I think that there is a, a responsibility on the behalf of the military to point that out. Um, and, you know, I, I, we, we don't really see enough of cases of particularly senior um, military leaders resigning in the face of orders to, to go to war that are unethical. Um, it would have been good to see more of that in, for example, mm. 2003 invasion of mm. Iraq, because that has an, an enormous power. Um, now it doesn't, you know, that's got to be done carefully and not to undermine mm. the democracy. Mm. But it is a it is a power that is available, that discipline, mm. disobedience, and I think that that's something we need to be training people for from the beginning at, at the small level. You know, um, 
your immediate superior says do this and that, that's problematic. To be able to set, speak up and say, mm. not sure that's right, sir. Not sure that's right, ma'am. Um, mm. What having that as as a a, a I suppose a culture, I think, is is important because then when people are at the top, um, they have the the ability to to stand firm. I've actually just um, last year had a, a student finish his PhD uh, under my supervision, arguing that what he calls the general, as in 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 the Australian context, uh, mm-hmm. CDF, um, should have the right to refuse um, on the on the grounds of conscience, and for it not to be an illegal act, and for for it not to be a requirement. That uh, she or he at that point resign, which is a really interesting argument. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I'll I'll, I'll get some details of you uh, on that because I think that's a that, that's certainly an area that I'm particularly interested in because I think that's that is part of what a democracy is uh, as well. Uh, and I really do like to point that it, it is about a democracy. And democracy, the, I recently heard a very neat way to think of democracy that it's not on or off. There's no on or off switch. It's more like a dimmer. Right, and you can kind of dim the light, and 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 there are various stages of democracy until it kind of turns into the darkness uh, that is no longer democracy, uh, and and it's very easy for those stages to kind of drop off, and 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 for us to oh well no that's you know that's what my superiors told me or that's what what that's what the government wants me to do, and that's what I go and do, uh, and that's what we do in democracy. But ultimately, it is those very non-reflective responses uh, that will lead us outside of a democracy, you know, right. into, into potentially, and I'm not saying Australia, or, but, but, but certainly there's a, there's a risk of that. Um, this then takes me, I guess, to the, to the more, I guess, on the, on the front lines piece, uh, which is really what the book, as you, as you rightly pointed out, it, it, is, it is written for the practitioner of war. That's how I saw it. Uh, it really tries to wrestle with some interesting ideas about what makes us do what we do on a battle space and of course how any ethical transgressions can occur no one is born a war criminal so what makes otherwise good people turn bad that's uh that's the million dollar question isn't it uh, <laughs> yeah. if i had the answer i'd be very rich but um, yeah so i i think there are a wide range of um of reasons, um, and we're still coming to understand all of them. But what I focused on uh, in the book, and it's it's really only a, a very very small part, I guess, of the answer, but is um, what I call ethical risk factors. And mm-hmm. I, I, since writing the book, I, I'm now increasingly referring to these factors as um, ethics inhibitors. Mm. I think okay. we. So Wonderful. it's certainly the case that we we might find. Um, transgressions being carried out by people who are just bad eggs, um, but but I, I think there's a there is a problem with the bad egg theory in that it's it's too easy, right? That yeah. too often we go, well, they're just a bad person, and so That's we right. move on and we don't learn anything. And I think that there are certainly occasions, um, and I know this from my own experience, and I'm sure everybody does as well, where um, people who are generally sound of sound ethics. Um, find themselves doing things that that they realize in, retrospectively they shouldn't have done, yeah. um, that they wouldn't normally have done. And so part of the thinking is what are those um, conditions that lead otherwise good people to do things, to make bad ethical decisions, poor ethical decisions? Um, and this is a, a, a fascinating field. It's a, it's a too small field so far, but um, it's starting to grow. and it's thinking about those kinds of factors that can lead to those bad decisions. And I'll just give you one example. So there's um, a fair amount of evidence that human beings are reflexively racist and sexist, um, Mm -hmm. that at our most instinctive level, we automatically draw distinctions between people on the base of race and sex. And, and there's a reason for that, right? There's an evolutionary reason right, for that. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so why is it that most people, thankfully, are not that way in their behaviour? Well, it's because we learn that that's actually not an, a, a useful or sound way to distinguish between people. It's not an ethical way to distinguish between people. Mm. And so what happens is we, we learn, and that the part of our brain um, that is dealing with that is our forebrain and so it's it's essentially what what's happening is our forebrain is is overriding our more instinctive 
um, more primitive um, brain processes. This mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. poor neuroscience on my part, but roughly speaking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and so anything um, that interrupts our ability to engage our forebrain in that kind of self-control way puts us at risk of making poor decisions in terms mm. of um, you know, racism and sexism. So um, things like being very tired, uh, obvious things. Things like being taken by surprise, right? The evolutionary brain um, is designed to react very quickly when it's taken by surprise. And the way the brain does that is by um, just bypassing the, the forebrain, which takes a lot of energy and time. And so mm. we make very quick decisions, and those are usually very self-protective decisions and not always um, in very ethical ways. Mm. Um, mm. And so thinking about those kinds of things that can lead us to make those, those poor decisions and understanding them better, I think, is, is really crucial in mm. getting to grips with, with way, the way these things happen. That, that's wonderful. That just reminds me of a discussion I had with uh, Dr. Douglas Fields, who is a neuroscientist, and he, he wrote a book, a fantastic book called Why We Snap. Uh, and basically, he's figured out that there are nine, this is all ones and zeros, zero social science in it. Uh, it's ones and zeros, uh, pathways in the brain, nine of them, uh, that if triggered, we will snap. Uh, you know, and uses a very interesting uh, mnemonic, life morts, and, you know, all of these different triggers, you know, like threat to life. Uh, there is no thinking. It's an immediate response, you know, fight, flight, freeze, whatever it is, uh, or an insult. Um, and, and that really is what you're saying there is really, in my mind, that there's a creating a connection between, you know, how our ethics and our moral compass can be degraded uh, beyond the rational, beyond the thinking mind into a reactionary mind, uh, and I think this is a really crucial piece uh, of understanding war and, 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 and battles. Uh, and, and this is something I spoke with David Wedham uh, uh, at length as well, uh, particularly in relation to the IGADF. Um, it, it's, it's something that I think we, you, you know, you're, you dedicate chapter six uh, complete to this, uh, these risk factors. And, I, and, I, and, and to me personally, it was the chapter that spoke to me the loudest. And I found it interesting that our recently published uh, ADF Ethics Doctrine, Chapter 6 in there as well, you know, talks about risk factors. So I'm not sure if there is a... There, there <laughs> may be a connection. A, okay. connection. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I thought there might be a, a, a subtle link there. Um, and, and I found it a, a welcoming to see it in our, our Ethics Doctrine as much as I personally would like to see it develop a lot more and maybe even sit, you know, in Chapter 1 or 2. Because the way I see it is and I've argued this point previously and, 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 and written a few things about it, that I feel like where we can't talk about Yusin Bello without understanding the context, you know, like, like we just talked about. No one is born a war criminal. There are, and, and you know, my kind of a light bulb moment, uh, I had a light bulb moment when I, I was reading about Kurt Lewin and his, um, uh, his well, call it formula, but that uh, behaviour is a function of the personality in the environment. Uh, so, you know, the personality one carries, uh, and that is partially nature, partially nurture, of course. There's a lot of research on, on personality. But it is the interplay with the environment that will dictate behaviour, which is why anybody, anybody is susceptible to doing the wrong thing if only the right conditions are set to trigger their personality uh, to do a bad act or an act that we would subsequently call uh, a war crime. Which is why I think your your point, for example, about sleep. You know, I've been in the army for many years. I've, I've been out for a while, but but it's not something that yes, we all know that we need to sleep. But it's not it's not a mandated you are to sleep. Um, you know, on, particularly on operations, I've deployed on operations, sleep is a luxury because the environment is such that everything is buzzing. You you need to be you know moving. You need to be contributing. So so I guess the question is, how do we bring the importance of all of these these environmental and context factors into our discourse for firstly and secondly then how do we replicate the tensions that are created in the environment uh, in our training so that the first time we're facing an ethical challenge is not on the on the battlefield but you know in a controlled uh, safe space um, I think that's a that's a fantastic question and a really important issue and look one one of the things that has struck me as I've looked into this kind of research is how little of it has actually been done in the military context. So we, we've learned a fair amount from, uh, you know, the broader um, psychology, neuroscience research, um, most of which is done 
in as as most researchers on on university students because they're yeah you know, easy, <laughs> free labor <laughs> yeah exactly um, but yeah. actually we've not really done a lot of the the research that's specific to the military context so I think as a as a as an academic as a researcher to me the first answer is we've got to understand this stuff better we've got to actually do the research that's going to take investment that's going to take time and effort. Um, but if we really want to uh, mitigate these factors, we have to understand them properly. Um, mm. And then uh, can we really be effective in incorporating them into training? But we, but we can start doing that already with what we, what we already know. Um, so, uh, you know, I've been uh, doing some, some work with SOCOM for a while. And one of the things um, we've worked on is a, a tool for designing ethical quandaries to go, in, go into, into training. Um, so that when, firstly, it's going to happen, right? So, so that it becomes normal for people who are designing training to think, where are the ethical challenges in this? I need to make sure there are some mm. and that that um, the trainees are, are being confronted by these ethical challenges, that there's some kind of feedback mechanism, some kind of follow-on education that happens. Um, but, and that needs to happen. The problem is that um, where it does happen, which is a good thing, it tends to be a bit ad hoc. It tends to be, mm. well, I, I had this experience or I heard about this case, so I'll build that in. But to try to do it in a more systematic way and go, what exactly are we trying to identify as the, the ethical, uh, particular ethical challenge assigned with, associated with this particular bit of training that we need to do? And then how do we design um, an ethical quandary accordingly? Yeah, and one that reflects our collective moral identity, right? Rather than an individual soldier's moral identity because as we said before we all come from you know we're, we're, we're put together from various different identities that form the soldier so to speak uh, on the day and I think designing training that's got that's that's the challenge I guess is designing training that will sufficiently trigger various environmental factors within the soldier and then throwing them into an ethical dilemma in order to train them to respond in a way that we want, our moral identity to uh, collective moral identity to respond in such a situation, and that I guess is the is the real challenge. Right? Absolutely, and, and you know, it's, so it's not just about throwing people into the challenges, but giving them a way to respond to it and having a, a common language to discuss these things. Um, when when I, I mentioned I, my my last job, I taught at the US Naval Academy, mm. and they have a fantastic um, uh, ethics uh, education package um, course there. But in the early days, what they tried was just having students look at a bunch of case studies and discuss them. And mm. they found that without a, a framework um, for them to lay over those, those issues, it all became a case of, well, my, my opinion is this. Yes. And there was no way to actually to develop some kind of common view, some kind of um, overarching sense of who we are and how we, we tackle these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, what do you think? I mean, I get the sense that it stems from a little bit of naivety about war, uh, you know, and and those who've experienced real war, I'd be surprised if any of them would genuinely be able to say that, you know, we can have wars without atrocities. I mean, it's a, you know, and, and Clausewitz would agree with this, right? I mean, as well, that, you know, the uh, uh, you know, mass violence in support of political aims, that's, you know, that's what we're, that's that's what war is. Um, so, what do you think? Is it possible to fight a war without atrocities, and, and ultimately something we can then later call war crimes? I have to think that that's possible because that's I'm in the business of trying to make that happen, mm, and I yeah. and I do do think um, the longer a war goes on, the more likely there will be atrocities. Um, the more intense a war is, the more likely there will be a, a atrocities. Mm. And so, so maybe it's it's a uh, you know idealism, but we we simply have to aim at that. That has yeah. to be the goal. Um, well, it's like democracy, right? It's, right. Uh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and you know you, we, here we're distinguishing between atrocity and uh, things like collateral damage, which is inescapable. Um, collateral damage is is a, tragic but it's not necessarily an atrocity it can be within the rules of war so i mean the 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 just war tradition is all about trying to navigate a pathway between uh, two truths one is that war is sometimes necessary and the other is that war is always terrible and so mm. we're, we're always trying to 
uh, tread this path that allows enough um, freedom of action to be able to actually fight wars, um, but at the same time, it's always trying to reduce the as much as possible the suffering that war brings. And that's a that's a difficult yes. path, and it's a compromise, right. but it but it doesn't have room for atrocity. Yeah, no, I, I, I well put. I mean, I think it, it, it's it's reducing the probability of things occurring, and that's what training is supposed to be. Uh, it, you know, I, I'm personally convinced that there will always be something that one could then ultimately interpret as an atrocity. You know, in, in in any war, and that's because an individual might just snap, right? Like what I, what I was talking about before with Douglas Fields, because he's lost, you know, four of his mates um, because you know his. I don't know, his, uh, his mum just died at home. Um, it, it, it could be a myriad of reasons. You know, he hasn't slept. Uh, he's been living on Red Bull for the past, you know, three months, et cetera, et cetera, and something happens and he just loses it. So, so, but I think that the point being is that we need to reduce the probability of that occurring, and that's what our training should be all about, is to, is to, is to create such conditions that we can actually test for that. Yeah. Is it possible to create those conditions? And, and how, how have you seen it done well? I mean, are there some, you know, particularly this kind of replicating the environment that is the battle space uh, to then test for these, uh, or, or train, I should not test, but train for these ethical challenges? Um, well, let me step back and, and make mm-hmm. a broader comment, then I'll, I'll, I'll try, uh, try mm-hmm. to answer of that. Um, I do want to say that it's not just about when we snap. And so I try to distinguish between um, ethics inhibitors or ethical risk factors that are are of that kind of that you know where, where we just make a snap decision, mm, mm, but mm. we also got to recognise the enormous power of um, our social groupings on us. Mm. That, that this idea of ethical drift, this idea of um, normalised deviance, this is the other part of that equation that we have to understand better and have to deal with. Um, and and I think it, I think I think it can be done. I think again we need more more information on on the causes and. Mm. and and how we mitigate them, but I, I've seen some some good examples. So I, I um, uh, last year um, had the opportunity to um, participate as an observer only in the um, um, commando sergeants course mm-hmm. uh, and observed a number of the training serials that they did, where they had deliberately put into them some ethically challenging aspects um, that were very very well done, and the feedback was was really appropriate. So I, I, I'm hugely encouraged as to what is possible. Um, I think we can do it. We just need to need to become automatic. You know, for, for me, if, we, if we're doing ethics as a thing on the side, we've failed. Ethics right. has to be just one of those um, drills that we do, just one of the, the many aspects of, of decision-making uh, as we go through. Yeah. I think the issue is that it, uh, you know, seemingly seems so complicated, but, uh, you know, really when you boil it down, it's not. But you, you talked uh, about uh, ethical drift, and I really like that phrase. Um, and, and, and here I'm going to refer to uh, uh, an example, analogy you gave when you spoke to Harry Moffat um, uh, some time ago on, 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 on a podcast that he, he co-hosts, and you used the submarine as an example. Can you just detail that particular analogy that you use uh, because I think it's a useful way to think about moral drift uh, and re- or a useful way to visualise it. Yeah, so, um, and for me, I'm a simple-minded guy, so these kinds of things are helpful <laughs> well, to me as well. well. well but, not, 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 I've read your book. <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> so, so essentially, you know, if you think about yourself on a submarine, everything around you is in a fixed distance from you. Um, you know, the people, yeah, they're moving around a bit, but you, every, your, your whole sense of, of space is kind of fixed. You don't have windows on a submarine, um, and so you don't really have a sense of the movement that's going on for this whole thing. And, and our social environments are often like that, that we, they become very enclosed, particularly if you think of, you know, think of a unit on deployment, right? Mm. You are detached from all other social inputs, um, and so you just don't see when you're drifting. Um, and that's not because you're, you're bad. Um, that's because we're human. And we relate ourselves to those in, in our immediate vicinity and we, we take our cues from them. And if those cues have shifted, well, we may not notice. So for me, it's key to have some kinds of um, what I think of as, as ethical circuit breakers. Mm. Um, so ways to burst that bubble, if you like, to, to reconnect you in with the broader world, with the, the, the bigger norms of the institution. Um, and thinking about what those look like, I think, is really important. Sometimes it's as simple as, 
having someone you trust who's an outsider who can come in and see what you're doing and get and go actually you're drifting um mm. like why are you allowing this to happen oh i didn't realize um and it's it's a it's a very very human problem um also you know it's not just a kind of observation it's it's been shown in, in lots of studies as well mm. Mm. yeah it's a, a, a again i couldn't I- uh, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and I think it's a really visual way to to picture how this occurs, uh, and particularly say on on, on a deployment. Um, what about and, and this is and I think it's particularly relevant for our special forces who work in smaller teams, uh, you know, usually more isolated uh, than everyone else. What do you think the word "special" in within the special forces means and does? Uh, or what does it inculcate within those particular soldiers? Because I think that's potentially part of this cultural piece that you're talking about. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I, and I think those identities are very, very important. Mm. Um, you know, and just a caveat, just a caveat, I've got a lot of Special Forces friends who, yeah. who I admire and who are absolutely champions of moral and ethical decency. Uh, so, so just to give that as a caveat, this is not a slight on our special forces right. in any way. Absolutely, but but look, anything that that's um, going to set you apart is is a little bit risky, and it needs to be uh, there needs to be some awareness of that that has to be managed. Interestingly, um, uh, Sterling, when he created the original British SAS, was very adamant to, to his people: don't think of yourselves as as elite. So he he was concerned about that term, right? You're not an elite force. Mm. You're special because you do different things, but mm. you're not elite. Um, well, we've <laughs> yeah. almost kind of switched the meaning switched of those around. things yeah, around. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we do have to, you know, terms matter and words matter. Um, and if our if we if our mottos tell us something, we we believe them. If our um, labels tell us something, we do tend to be affected by them. I think those are really really important issues that we need to to think hard about. Yeah, and address. Um, and this is maybe a nice, uh, nice pivot because uh, just moving from the kind of submarine uh, again piece, which are, which, which to me again is, speaks so well to me because it's so visual. Uh, this moral drift, and then when one comes back from a deployment, uh, it is this. This is the time, I guess, when the when when the thoughts come back, and and you realize and you reflect based on what you're witnessing in your everyday society and what's back at home that potentially you had a moral drift. And this, of course, then leads to potentially moral injury. Uh, what is moral? How do you define? And, and again, this is, again, it's like it's, it's like culture, right? It's one of those terms that's, that's yet to be clearly defined. But how do you define moral injury? Yeah, as you say, it's, it's something that's a very much a hot discussion still underway. Um, but I, I see moral injury in terms of that earlier discussion about moral frameworks. Mm. So, it helps me to think of a person as fundamentally a moral being as defined by the structure. And to be a moral injury is anything that happens that so affects that structure that we become no longer able to function in the appropriate moral way in the world. And that can be two kinds of, of injury. One is where, you know, think of it as, as the equivalent of a, of a, you know, being hammered by a body blow that breaks a rib, right? Mm. Um, you, you, you don't walk straight anymore um, because you're mm. in pain uh, and you're suffering. Um, if, we, if we experience something or do something that radically shakes or, or even dislocates that, that moral framework that we have, that, that sense of who we are and, and, and why what we do matters, um, that affects our ability to, to behave and to act in the world in the mm. way that we used to do. Um, now, I'm not saying all moral shocks are of that kind, right? I think we can have moral pains without being morally injured. injured. Mm. And I think that's mm. an important distinction. So yeah. that's one kind of moral injury. And, you know, usually these symptoms, I think, are you, you experience overwhelming shame or guilt or anger, something like that. And it's affecting your ability to, to live life in the way that you did before. Mm. But the other mm. kind is, I think, equivalent. Um, and it's usually where it's kind of re- repeated exposure Think of, uh, we don't always think of this as an injury, but think of a callus, right? You do some some job again and again, and you use some kind of tool over and over, and you, you rub one part of your, your hand against that tool over, and you build up a callus. And mm. well, that's a, a self-protection mechanism. But it's actually an injury because it means in that spot, you cannot feel what you should be able to feel. Anymore. Mm. And I think the analogy, morally speaking, is that we can become literally callous. That, mm. And that's a kind of injury. Because we are no longer aware that 
of situations that should that actually demand a, an ethical or moral response from us, but we've become desensitized to that and unable to react. That's a different kind of moral injury, and I think one that's largely over, overlooked in, in the debate um, at the moment. And, and I get, I should acknowledge, I get that uh, almost entirely from my colleague, Ned Dobos, who's much smarter than me. So, But I think it's important. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, and in fact, I'll I'll be speaking to Ned in due course as well. Yeah, because I think for that very reason, because this is really kind of his wheelhouse and 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 a conversation I look forward to. Maybe now we can move on because you, you in the book you set out a way to perhaps prepare our soldiers or protect our soldiers with a particular type of ethos. Traditionally, we're embracing the warrior ethos. And, and you know, I spoke to Shannon French about this at length, the warrior ethos. She wrote a fantastic book on it. Um, and that there are lots of positives in the warrior ethos. Uh, but, of course, the warrior ethos, much like the word special, culturally has potentially been infused with a certain, certain well, callousness <laughs> almost, uh, which, you know, is the kind of... Uh, uh, is the noble warrior who's going to do the things that no one else is ready to do. Um, and, of course, you know, <laughs> under a supreme emergency, right, which is uh, we won't necessarily get into, but, you know, we, we embrace those people. Uh, but you talk about a different type of ethos that we ought to inculcate within our soldiers. What is it? Well, I propose this idea of a guardian ethos, that, that that's the identity we should be, be building. And, again, it's not something that, that I made up. Um, it's comes sort of originally roughly from Plato, uh, and I, t- I pick it up from um, Professor Pauline Shanks-Karin of the US, US Naval War College, who's mm. written quite extensively on this. And I, and I think she's essentially right. Um, that it's, it's a, and, and of course it could become sullied and changed in its meaning, but as things stand today, I think it's a, it's a more helpful um, mental framework for, for soldiers than the warrior idea. and and. The, you know, as, as Shannon's excellent book uh, points out, there, there is lots of good in, in the warrior ethos. The, the problem is that, for me, the problem is that it's focused on the what and not the why of war. So it says, mm. mm-hmm. what is this? It's war. What am I? I am a technician of war. I am a, mm. a practitioner of war. It doesn't ask why. And I think the mm. guardian says, why am I doing this? I'm, mm. I'm a protector. I'm here to guard and protect my people. But also where... You know, unless it's absolutely impossible for me to do so, um, to protect the lives of, of others who are not um, Australians, who are not on, on my side. Um, mm. And I think that that's a, 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 a potentially a way of thinking about that identity that could help us to um, make better decisions, have a, have a, a better s- scope of things. So, mm. you know, the warrior thing, for example, you know, we, we tend to seek, if we think warrior, we we tend to connect with other warrior cultures. So there's a, been a, a rash in recent years of, of identification with Vikings, for example. Um, but actually, you know, what was the distinctive thing that Vikings did? Rape and pillage, right? That's the term. Um, it, we've got to be really careful about building those connections. What we're doing, because that's actually not what the, the military is there to do. The military, the core connection is with the, with the society the military serves. Um, mm. And I think the Guardian does that connection uh, better, if you like. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And which is why you you said before, words matter, symbols matter. Uh, these things are communicating something. You know, nonverbal communication is is a real thing, and we pick up so much uh, just from a symbol, a flag. <laughs> People will die, you know, for for ultimately a piece of cloth uh, because of what that symbol embodies. Uh, and the same with words. So I, I really couldn't agree more. Uh, I'm also speaking to uh, Professor Pauline Shanks-Karen uh, in the near future as well. So I, I, I think I'm onto something here. I'm <laughs> <You are. laughs> uh, 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 speaking of the Guardian, and just kind of pivoting back to the to the Yusad Bellum, how do we instill the Guardian ethos into our politicians? How do that's we do a, that? That's a really good question. And um, that's something I've had very little success in. I've, I've had, <laughs> from time to time yeah. tried to, you know, you know insinuate myself into uh the, the political world to, to try to give talks on, on mm. military ethics of Yosef Bellum um, with, with no success. But I think um, people imbibe what, what they see expressed in culture. And if the, if the, what the military 
expresses to the culture is a guardian ethos that will influence and impact on how um, decision makers view the military. And I mm. think that, that that potentially could help. And again, it's not going to um, replace the need for, for better education for decision makers on, on the ethics of war. That's an ongoing need that I think has never really been addressed. Mm. Um, mm. But, yeah. but it, I think it would help. Whereas the again it, that that issue of if they're the warriors, um, then it's about war. Okay, they're, they're the experts in war. That's that's how we think of them. Or if they're professionals, it's another term. And, and I don't dislike the term professional. I certainly use it a lot. Um, but again, I think it's it's a little bit too narrow and it's it's a bit neutral. It doesn't mm. say why we do it. It's just that we are we are the experts at this thing. Um, and so I think that idea of guardian gives a an overall mental picture of what is it that we're doing when we fight mm, yeah and, and to me it on top of that as well where i see the conflict is is particularly for politics it's all about interests right we're trying to merge this interest versus values tension within our soldier within an individual soldier right because if, even the mission of the australian defense force is to protect australia and its interests it doesn't say to protect australia and its values Right, so so there within that itself, there's a clash because it might be in our national interest to go Iraq, and many will argue that it is, but it's certainly not within our values or value systems. So now we're trying to kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the old uh, uh, round peg in a square hole type of thing. Uh, we're trying to squeeze our soldier infused with these values and morality and ethics, uh, you know, to go and fight a just war, uh, you know driven by these values but for the interests uh, so i think that's there's i think there's a there's a there's a pretty big uh clash there uh, that we are yet to really openly discuss let alone address uh, i agree and, and and look it's not unethical for a, for a state to um, pursue the interests of the nation of mm -hmm. the people of australia i think that's that's what Expect it's there that. to do yeah. Yeah. um but um sticking by the values that fundamentally underpin the nature of that state is the most fundamental interest we have because mm. otherwise our society becomes something it's protecting something in it with a in a way that doesn't match up to what it's protecting which doesn't yeah. just doesn't work and that will undermine the nature of of the society of the society uh, maybe maybe my uh, my last question to you uh, and this is one that's really tailored to the practitioner you talk about, and you, you you kind of towards the end of the book, you talk about the ethical triangulation. Um, what is ethical triangu triangulation, and how can we apply it? So, ethical triangulation is one attempt at a a decision making, an ethical decision making um, model or, or framework, if you like. It's not a theory. It doesn't work as a as a you know comprehensive ethical theory or anything like that, or, or, or theory of philosophy. Um, but what it's trying to do is to give a, a fairly simple way of, of looking at an ethical problem um, that will help to mitigate the, the limitations of the different main approaches to ethics that we have in our society. So we, you know, we, the three main approaches we have are deontological, where it's kind of principle or rule-based. Mm -hmm. um, these are the rules. Think of something like the, uh, the Ten Commandments, right? These are do this, mm -hmm. don't do that. Um, or we think in terms of consequences. So the right thing is to do the thing that's going to result in the best consequences for those affected. Um, or we tend to think in terms of character, of virtues. Um, and each of these is a, is a very powerful way of looking at ethics, but they will sometimes get to different answers. Um, and the question is then, so what does a, which of these should a, a soldier of a democratic state choose? Well, I think the answer is we shouldn't choose because these are all three fundamental, um, if you like, the ethical outworking of fundamental strands that define the liberal democratic state. And I think if we choose one, we, we become unbalanced as, as, a, as an arm of the state. And so for mm -hmm. me, um, what's useful is to look at an ethical problem through each of these questions. And so the first is, what are the principles that apply? And usually that amounts to a question of respect. Uh, respect for others, most, mm -hmm. most centrally. Mm -hmm. What does that tell me? What are my my um, permissions and constraints, right? Uh, then I think, okay, but I don't stop there. 
I do need to think about the consequences. Consequences do matter in, in ethics. We don't go, well, I just follow the rules, even though the consequences might be catastrophic. So I have to ask myself, do the consequences sometimes um, change my calculation? Do they, they mm. mean I emphasize one of my constraints more than others or uh, one of my permissions over, over others? Or do, they, do the consequences outweigh what is normally a permission for me? Um, mm. So for in, if you're you know, thinking of the Yosem Bello, I have a permission to uh, kill enemy combatants, right? That's a fun, that's the heart of the, the principle of discrimination. But necessity says, the principle of necessity says, but only if necessary. Um, mm. If the consequences that people will die unnecessarily, that outweighs your permission, right? So it's the same sort of logic going on there. Mm-hmm. And then the third step of triangulation is to think about character, because what it, that does is it makes you turn your eyes back on yourself and go, what about me? And particularly, what are my, my limitations as, a, as an ethical thinker? What are my vices, to put it in terms of virtue theory? I know, for example, that I'm, I'm prone to be rash. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, many military people are, are there because they are act-centric. So there's a danger there that they would tend to want to go do something. Well, maybe sometimes the right thing is to do nothing. And knowing that about yourself, having that self-reflection of awareness of your character will enable you to then kind of check back on your, your proposed course of action and go, okay, but is this just my character skewing my decision-making mm. here? It's mm. not a perfect system. It's not going to give you a, you know, a, a mathematically correct answer. But what I think it does is it gives three ways of, of looking at a problem that, and each compensates for the weakness of the other. Mm. Yeah, and absolutely wonderful. And I think it, the 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 important piece is that can it, it can be trained for, and 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 discussed and debated in a training environment, which would then, of course, lead to the awareness uh, of that triangulation principle. You know, in a combat zone, in an instant, it, it can make it in, instinctive. Um, of course, through the amount of the right amount of training and practice that we applied to it. Yeah. Uh, Dean, as I expected, this was an absolutely wonderful conversation. Uh, I'm uh, very grateful for the time you've given me, uh, and thank you for writing the book. I think it's a really important book and one that I've certainly already uh, talked about a lot with some of my peers, and um, certainly one that should be read uh, by anybody in uniform, regardless of what type of work they do, uh, because we are all susceptible to well the moral drift, uh, and of course. Uh, our moral identity uh, is what will drive it, uh, and of course, all of that in you know in hope that we can prevent poor decisions on the battlefield, uh, which ultimately then lead to moral injury, which uh, uh, certainly degrades the force uh, going forward. Thank you very much, Dean. I really appreciate it. It's great being here. I really appreciate the invitation. Great chatting to you, Matt. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Voices of War. And since you got this far, please consider showing your support by liking and reviewing the show wherever you catch your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee page. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you, and until next time.